The following audio is from City Rev Church. For more information about City Rev Church, visit us online at cityrev.org. About a year ago, I had a, a moment. I was driving down Sheridan, heading west, and the little indicator on my dashboard started to, to shine, to blink, that told me my engine was getting too hot. It was overheated. And so that indicator went off, and I looked at the gauge, you know the one I'm talking about with the H and the C, and it could tell you how cold or hot it was. And sure enough, it was all the way on H, okay? Wasn't a good situation. I don't know a lot about cars. In fact, if you're a car person, momentarily, I'm sure I'm going to embarrass myself as I talk about it. But uh, I remember I called, I pulled over, I called the mechanic I usually take my car to, I explained the situation. And they're like, yeah, you don't want to keep driving this thing. This needs to either get towed or you need to drive like 10 miles per hour after giving it a nice cool down uh, and get over here. So anyways, I I weigh a little bit, take it over. And that whole experience, eventually the car gets fixed. It taught me something. I try to take advantage of those moments to learn, okay? So like I said, I'm oblivious and ignorant when it comes to cars. But here's what I learned uh, about the way that the engines in our cars that naturally get hot, there's a fire inside of them, right? Uh, I learned how that engine gets cooled. There's a whole system that our cars are built on. And really, there is an underrated teeny tiny component in each of our cars. It's called the thermostat. And what the thermostat does inside our engine is it helps regulate how much coolant flows through the engine. So just to paint a picture for you, if your engine is running too hot, the thermostat will open up and allow for more coolant to flood through the engine and cool it down. Conversely, if your engine is too cold, the thermostat will make sure that the coolant does not flow through your engine and allow it to rise up to an appropriate temperature. There's this sweet spot that you want your engine to run in. Now, uh, we're very familiar and we can get it intuitively. I don't want my engine getting too hot. Like if it starts smoking, bad things are happening. That's not a good sign. But the question that I had is like, well, what about if it's too cold? Like, is it a really a big deal? And it actually is. Uh, if you've ever lived in a place where there's this thing called cold, uh, there's, there is this situation where you have to turn your engine on and let it kind of warm up for a few minutes, right? Uh, and, and you let the engine warm up because if your engine is too cold, it actually won't function at its peak performance. It's not all that great for it. So it needs to actually warm up. There's a sweet spot. Now, here's why I bring all this up. Today, we're talking about the idea of identity. Who do we see ourselves to be? Who am I? Every person in this room at some point or another, maybe you're asking the question right now, who am I really? down deep, underneath the surface. And I found that that illustration or that metaphor of a thermostat, I found that to be so helpful when it comes to the concept of identity, because for some of us, we're living right now and our identity meter, if you will, is far too hot. I mean, we think we are hot. We think we are high up. We think that we are inflated. The world revolves around us. We're, you know, big movers and shakers in this world and people need to meet our demands, right? And we need something in those moments to help pull us down into our reality, to a sweet spot, to get get us in a place where we're actually seeing ourselves rightly as God would have us see ourselves. And then there are others of us that maybe our life circumstances, things that have happened recently, bring us to a place where our identity is far too low. Our our sense of self actually is driving us to despair. 
and we need something to bring us up and set ourselves on solid ground. In James chapter one, James is gonna offer wisdom to people in both camps. People who are in both of those places, James is gonna offer us some wisdom and teach us that it's actually the same thing for both audiences. We need the same exact thing, we just need to look at it from two different angles. So I wanna look with you uh, at James chapter one. We're gonna start in verse nine and we're gonna talk about this idea of identity. Now, let me give you a little roadmap of how we're gonna map out our time before we look at the passage. We're gonna talk about how we form our identity how do we form our sense of self? We're gonna talk about how the gospel exalts the lowly and how the gospel humbles the exalted. That's our roadmap. Here's what James has to say, starting in verse nine. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the sun and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Let me recap here. So we started this letter called James a few weeks ago, and James is writing to Christians scattered throughout the Roman Empire in the first century. These are early communities of Jesus followers a few thousand years ago. And he's giving them instruction on how they are to live. And in his audience, he has in mind two groups of people that make up the community of Jesus all throughout the Roman Empire. He has in mind two different types of people in this passage. He has a word for the lowly, and he has a word for the rich. Now, a quick observation about this before we move on. It's that James is writing knowing that in the community of Jesus, in the churches scattered throughout Rome, there are both the poor and the rich. It's worth stopping and noting that for a moment. In fact, he's gonna come back around to that theme later in this chapter, as we'll see in a few weeks. But this was not something common in the Roman Empire, nor is it really common today. In the church, in the community of Jesus, you have both impoverished, poor, struggling to get by, and wealthy, powerful, influential in the same faith family gathered together. And James is giving instruction to both of these audiences within his general audience. And he's giving them instruction on how they are to form and shape their identity. Uh, as you can imagine, uh, I'm sure it's not hard for us to think about how this happens but it's possible to take your life circumstances, your relative success or your relative failures, and then derive from your circumstances the basis of your self-worth and your identity. It's not hard for us to imagine, yeah, I, I can see how you can take your socioeconomic status, whether you're lowly or you're wealthy, I can see how it's possible to take those circumstances in your life and then build your identity based on those circumstances. James is giving them instruction, warning them of the dangers of that. So uh, with that, here's uh, what James is gonna teach us. He's gonna teach us, number one, if you're taking notes, write this down. He's gonna teach us how we form our identity, how we form our identity. And to do that, there is a key word here 
uh, that if you have a Bible with you or your Bible app, I want you to highlight this word if you can. It's the word boast. Write that word down, highlight it, the word boast. James says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Boast, that word boast. Now, this word boast is a, a verb in Greek that's in the present tense. So this is our English translation of a Greek letter. And in Greek, this present tense, what it communicates is a continuous action, an action that keeps on going and doesn't end. James is saying, I want you to boast about and keep boasting about and don't stop boasting about something. What does he mean by boast? Uh, to boast is to glory in. It's to bask in something. It's to share it. It's to brag about something. That's what he's getting at. He wants believers in these two camps to boast about something because here's the thing about identity. Identity, your view of yourself has a direct link to what you boast in. The things that you boast about have a key an influential role in shaping your sense of self. I wanna put this on the screen graphically just so that we can follow along and maybe this visual will help us uh, be able to walk through this together. So what I boast in or what I glory in in general, what this does, if you'll see, check, check out the next slide, is this helps shape my self-worth. Let me explain. The things that we most often brag about, boast about, post about, uh, the things that we hear conversation about this topic and we think we have something to say and some insight to offer so we naturally jump in and bring our thoughts into it, uh, the things that we love to just bask in and glory in, the reason we do those things is because they give us a sense of worth. We feel like my life has value because of these things because I have this knowledge, or I have this lifestyle, or I have this feature to my life. I boast in that because it makes me feel wanted. As humans, here's something we know to be true. Every single one of us have this deep hunger and desire to be wanted. We all want it. We all are hungry and thirsty for purpose, being loved, Someone seeing us or a group of people seeing us and say, hey, we accept you, we invite you in. We need that sense and affirmation of our worth. And so we boast in things, we revel or we glory in things that we believe will give us self-worth. And then here's how the cycle continues, why my life has value. That then starts to influence and shape my identity. See, because this is where my life is deriving its value, its meaning and worth. Now this becomes who I am. And because this is who I am, watch what happens next. Because this is who I am, now I have to act or live a lifestyle that I can continue to glory in or boast in so that I feel worthy and that I can be this person that's ultimately defining who I am. And this identity cycle, if you will, continues. It keeps going and keeps going. And it's our aim as human beings, whether you're irreligious or religious, to have something in our lives that says we matter, to justify our existence, to say my life has meaning. Now, uh, I remember one of the most terrifying moments in my entire life was my ninth grade baseball tryouts. I remember uh, the nerves of showing up to the park 
I remember my heart pounding as I was uh, in the infield taking ground balls at shortstop and having to make the throw across the diamond in the big boy, big boy dimensions, okay? Like not Little League anymore. And I remember my heart pounding. I remember taking batting practice, being very nervous and mindful that eyeballs were on my every move, okay? I remember that. And the most terrifying thing though, actually came a couple hours after the tryout. It's when they post that sheet of paper, that fateful sheet of paper. You know what I'm talking about? And the sheet of paper didn't have names on it, I don't think. I think it had numbers. Like we weren't all gonna find out who made the team and didn't make the team anyway. Anyway, so the sheet of paper there, it had all the numbers of the people who made the team. I remember my heart pounding and thinking, man, I should have done this. I can't believe I didn't do that. I could have done this better. And I show up and I see the sheet of paper. And sure enough, my name, my number was on, on the sheet that I made the team. Junior varsity, but hey, uh, I made the team nonetheless, and I was so relieved. Now, I bring that uh, story up because even now, my heart's pounding remembering the angst of that moment. And here's the thing about that cycle that's so easy for us to get trapped in. This cycle is like living every single day of our lives like it's a tryout. And every one of our moves, everything we do say is an action that we can either boast or not boast about, that will either make us feel worthy or unworthy. And it's this angst, this fear that overcomes us as we think about, man, does my life actually have value? Does my life have any worth to it? Every day is this tryout. Did I do enough? I shouldn't have said that, I should have done this instead. And we're ruled by this angst, this regret, the shame, not sharing what we should do. And James is warning us and telling us there is a different way. See, here are two big problems with this cycle. Two big problems with this cycle is number one, what happens when you fail? What happens when you fail and down here, you really don't have any actions or anything about your lifestyle to boast about? And when you don't really have much to boast about because you failed, now you feel like your worth flows from your failure. And now because you're in this place of despair, because you're in this place where you're like, does my life even have any meaning to it? Now you build an identity based on that. And you can take this identity cycle and what ends up happening is it becomes a downward spiral. And we just go deeper and deeper and deeper in this place of shame, in this place of, place of hopelessness, in the angst and fear of, am I doing enough? Did they see me do that thing? Did they, were they watching when I succeeded? Why did they look when I failed? The second problem with this cycle is what happens when you succeed? Well, what happens when your lifestyle and your actions are great, you have something to boast about, so you feel pretty good about yourself, you feel worthy, and now you have this identity. I'm the intelligent one. I'm the successful one. I, I, I'm the one who's athletic. I'm the beautiful one, the handsome one. I'm the wealthy one. I'm the one with all the answers. I'm the funny one. And, and now, with success equally dangerous, if not more dangerous... Now we live with the constant angst of, man, I've got to keep proving myself that that's actually who I am. And I can't let my guard down. I can't slip up because if somebody sees that I'm less than the image that I've actually portrayed myself to be, I'll be doomed. They'll find me out that I'm not actually that person. You see, this cycle 
it breaks down and James is inviting the communities of Jesus that he's writing to, to step off this cycle. And I wanna show you the difference in what James says. Here's what James says. He's talking about this area. So notice, James's answer is not, don't boast about anything. James's answer or response to the way our identity is shaped is not, hey, so just stop boasting. No, he says to boast about something, but here's what he changes. Check this out. He changes what we boast in. James says, I want you to boast in your exaltation and your humiliation. You're exalting and you're humbling. Boast in what Jesus has done for you. Boast in the gospel, the good news of what Christ has accomplished on your behalf. James says, get off the tryout field and find something that's secure and settled. You see, Jesus through his life, death, and resurrection, offers us a settled identity. Jesus on the cross, he cried out, it is finished. His work complete. On the cross, Jesus taking onto himself the sin and guilt that each of us commit and deserve, Jesus takes that onto himself, dies in our place, and offers us eternal life, offers us new life in him. You see, the uh, analogy or the metaphor that's often used in the New Testament about the difference between an achieved identity and a received identity is that of adoption. Adoption. You see, when a parent adopts a child, the child didn't do a tryout. Uh, the child wasn't put into like, you know, a series of tests to see how strong they were, how, how fast their fastball was. Like, that's not what happened with adoption. It's a parent, it's a father and a mother saying to this child, you are now a part of our family. And the child doesn't have to pay anything. The parents pay a whole lot in more than just money to willingly bring a child into their home, adopt them into their family. That child, for that child, that is a received identity. That is now who they are. They didn't do it. They didn't work for it. They didn't pay for it. They didn't earn it. They received that new identity. And when it comes to following after Jesus for the Christian, we have not an achieved identity, a performance-based identity. We have a received identity on the basis of what Christ has done. For a follower of Jesus, it's not, God, please, I hope you're watching me crush it right now. Please see how good I'm doing. Or God, please, like, turn away, I really blew it this time. Like, our life before God is not a tryout. And one day we're nervous, like, freaking out. Did I make the list? Did I not make the list? That's not the gospel. The gospel is God so loves you. He knew you couldn't make the list on your own, and he adopts you into his family anyway. By his grace, he comes in and sweeps in Jesus, what he has done for you. So then you might ask the question, check this out. Okay, well, if this is how this works, and if it's all based on what Christ has done for me, then you might ask the question, what becomes of my actions? Do my actions have anything to do with it? Do my actions mean anything at all? Well, here's how it works. Here's our relationship with our actions. Now, my actions are no longer a part of the cycle that puts me on this roller coaster of I feel good about myself, I feel bad about myself. I feel worthy, I feel unworthy because I failed and then I succeeded. No, 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 no. Our identity is settled. We're at rest. We know who we are in Christ. And now our actions, what we do flow from a heart 
that's been redeemed and restored by Jesus. It flows from a place of rest. It flows from a place of obedience. This is now who I am. I'm a child of God. And so James is saying, I want your identity to be shaped in this way, to be settled in this way. And he does it in two directions. So we'll move on. Here's the second uh, point. You would write this down in your notes. James is going to teach us how the gospel exalts the lowly. He's going to take this idea of boasting and apply it in two directions. The first direction is he talks about the lowly. When James says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, he has in mind a group of people that are the people in society that all the important people just walk right by. James has in mind a group of people that would have been the majority of the early church who financially were not well off. Uh, some you might call living pay paycheck to paycheck in that era, some even worse than that, having to rely on others to meet their needs because of various life circumstances. But he's talking about people who are lowly. These are people who don't have power. They don't have influence. These are people who are on the margins of society. And James says to them, who no doubt would be tempted by their life circumstances to assign their value and their worth based on their lack of resources, lack of influence, lack of power. James says, I want you to boast in your exaltation. Well, what does he mean by exaltation? James is talking about what Christ has done for them. How just as Jesus died, was buried, and was exalted, raised, and seated at the right hand of the Father, they have also been exalted with Jesus. Uh, here's what Ephesians uh, says about this. He, he describes this, Paul. Look how Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 7 uh, puts it. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us to alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And he raised us up with him, with Christ, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Paul in Ephesians 2, he describes the gospel and he, all, he, I mean, several times he says, you've been buried with Christ, raised with Christ, you're now seated with Christ in the heavenly places. What, what he's getting at there in, in Ephesians chapter 2 is that a follower of Jesus, something has happened in their life where they are now united to Jesus. That when a person becomes a Christian, something new is birthed into the world. And that new creation is united to Jesus, or in Paul's language, is in Christ in such a way. I love how one pastor, Tim Keller, puts it. God takes what's actually true of Jesus, and he counts it true of you. What do I mean by that? That though Jesus is actually perfect, if you're in Christ, God counts it as though it's true of you. That just as Jesus is blameless and the one who conquers sin and death, that because that's who Jesus said, God counts that actually true of you. You've been united to Jesus, and Paul carries that logic out and says, just as Jesus is seated at God's right hand in the heavenly places, a believer in Jesus, not in the future, Paul doesn't say, and you will one day be seated with Christ. He says, right now, 
whether you don't have two nickels to rub together or you're someone who's wealthy, powerful, running a large company or anywhere in between, regardless of your influence, authority, if you are in Christ, you are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. This is who you are. You've been exalted. There's an inheritance coming your way in Christ. God has this immeasurably rich inheritance for you. So to the lowly brother, James says, do you realize who you truly are? Do you realize what Christ has done for you? That though your circumstances might try and convince you to build your identity in that direction, do you realize what Christ has accomplished for you? You've been exalted. You're a son or a daughter of the king. That inheritance is yours, it's coming. You're his beloved child. That's greater than any status or category this world could offer you. James says, boast in that. Brag about it. Revel in the fact that you've been exalted with Jesus. And then James is going to give a word to the exalted. Look, uh, the third uh, point here in our teaching, the gospel humbles the exalted. The gospel humbles the exalted. Look with me at verses 10 and 11 one more time. Verses 10 and 11. And let the rich boast in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower fails and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. I think it's worth noting that James has significantly more instruction and warning for those who are rich. And that term, that phrase, it's kind of like repulses us, right? And the tricky thing about money is we probably all know people who have a lot more money than we do. And so because of that, none of us ever think that we're rich, right? No person, right? I guess if you're the number one person on Forbes, you, you might not have that luxury, uh, pun intended. Um, but that is such a slippery term. But here's what I would say. I would take heed of this warning as all of us are members, regardless of our circumstances, all of us are members of the wealthiest society in the history of humanity. Even in the midst of economic uncertainty, I wouldn't just read that, oh, this is for the rich, not for me. Listen, lean in, regardless of your circumstances. James says, let the rich boast in their humiliation. What does he mean by humiliation? It's actually the same root word in verse nine where he says, let the lowly boast in their exaltation. That word lowly, same root word as the word humiliation here. To be made low is kind of the idea. Let the rich boast in the fact that they've been brought low through Jesus. Uh, and then James uses a series of metaphors. He borrows from the prophet Isaiah and the teachings of Jesus to use this series of metaphors to describe how riches, power, success, wealth, it's all fading. Uh, we have in our front yard a Thai gardenia tree that I think it's two times a year it produces blooms. Two seasons a year it produces blooms. And if you've ever uh, been around a gardenia tree, they produce the most uh, aromatic, beautifully smelling flowers. I mean, just incredible. Uh, and you can actually take one of the flowers and you put it in a little cup uh, of water and you let it kind of fill your house anyway. So we have this gardenia tree. It's, it's beautiful, and it produces these gorgeous white flowers, and they always bloom in the morning. So I'll be leaving work oftentimes in the morning, and I'll pass by the gardenia tree and smell the flowers and see these beautifully crisp white flowers that are there. And 
without, a, without fail, I'll come home that same day, later that evening, I'll come home and I'll look at that same tree and those beautiful white flowers are now brown, wilted, and either fallen off or falling off in one day. And James here, he's, he's using this garden imagery to point out just how fragile and temporary riches, wealth, success, status really is. He says it's like a flower that's here a moment and with a little bit of sun, the sun makes light work of it and it's gone. Why build your identity based on that? Why find your self-worth based on your net worth? Why take something that is so volatile and can be gone in an instant and that you can't carry with you, why take that and say, this is what gives me value in life? The, the amount of foolishness that that kind of identity produces will harm so many people around you. When wealth and success becomes the thing that makes me feel worthy, now I've got to go through the loop. Every action has to, no matter the cost, on my family, on what's right, because this is who I am. I need to prove that I'm worthy. I need to prove that I'm enough. And James says, let the rich, that their circumstances might tempt them to draw their worth from it, let the rich boast in the fact that God through Jesus, has brought them low. Let them boast in the fact that one day God found them as a lost sheep, and God was gracious enough to help pull back the curtain and all the fluff on the outside that makes their lives look like they've got it all together, they're happy they got everything, that God, in his kindness, helped them to see how desperately they needed him. Let the rich boast in their humiliation. The gospel, it humbles the exalted. Look at what Paul says in the very next verse in Ephesians 2. We just read in 5 through 7 about how the gospel exalts our identity, lifts us up. We are raised with Christ, seated with Christ. Listen to what Ephesians 2, 8 says. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. That our standing before God is a gift from him if you are a believer in Jesus. There wasn't some tryout, and you did better than the rest of the kids. And so God said, I want you on my team. No, all of us failed the tryout. God in his grace says, my son is perfect. He made the team. And if you're in him, you're on my team receiving his grace, not a result of work, so that no one can boast. Whether you have all the world's goods, you've got a comfortable life, you've got this and that, you've achieved your dreams, that's great, fantastic, wonderful. That's not who you ultimately are. You're a child of God. You're a servant of Jesus. You've been brought low graciously by your heavenly Father because he loves you too much to allow you to destroy your life, building it on something that fragile that'll just wilt away. God has so much more for us. Boast in what Christ has done. James says to the rich, do you realize who you are? Do you realize who you are? 
that all your successes and accomplishments, those are wonderful. But before a perfect and holy God, they amount to nothing. They're empty. A thousand years from now, they won't matter. A million years from now, they won't matter. You know what will is what we've done with Jesus, is who Jesus has made us to be and what he's accomplished on our behalf, boasting in our humiliation. So I ask you, the individual, those who are at Cooper City, those who are here online, I ask you the question, is your engine running too hot or too cold lately? Lately, is there this pull or temptation to see yourself through the lens of your circumstances? And maybe it is your economic condition right now, or things are not the way they used to be, or you're feeling tight and you're feeling pressed and you're overwhelmed and it's tempting to think, well, man, my life, my life's falling apart. I don't know how I can even go on. I feel despair. It's also possible, I was talking to my wife last night, Amy, through the message, and she brought up to me, it's also possible when you're lowly and in that condition, it's also possible to, with a self-righteous heart, think you're better than the person who has more. To see it almost like as a badge of honor and have this bad guy versus good guy mentality when it's a neutral thing. Money, paper, what we do with it, is what dictates the morality of it. It itself is not evil. It's when it becomes the fueling drive of our lives, the lust of our hearts, or a basis by which we self-righteously say, well, you're just a terrible person because you have all this. It's neutral. And it's possible to be in that place where you're lowly, or it's possible to be in that place where you're, you're up high in the clouds, and what Jesus has to offer you is something far greater. In fact, the, the sweet spot when you're in a relationship with Jesus, the, the metaphor really breaks down. Because when you're in that place of being exalted in Christ or humbled in Christ, even that identity is far superior than the identity of being wealthy in the world's goods. I mean, it's, it's a step up, not a step down, to be rooted in your identity as a servant of King Jesus, not a step down. And James, with the same truth, the gospel, says, look at it from two different angles. If you're lowly, your exaltation. If you're high in the clouds, if you're exalted through the humiliation, the humbling that comes with knowing what Jesus did on your behalf, that Jesus, who though he was rich, yet for our sake became poor, so that in him we might become rich. Jesus is the perfect example for us. You wanna talk about riches? How about owning everything? Jesus, who ruled and reigned from heaven in perfect glory, emptied himself, gave it all up, became a servant, and lived and died for broken people like you and me. He gave his life for us so that we might be restored to a relationship with God. My encouragement to us this week is find someone in your life, find someone in your family, find a friend, someone from your small group, find someone that you can boast to this week about what Christ has done in your life. Whether it was a moment that humbled you or a moment that lifted you up, find someone to boast to. Brag about Jesus. Brag about what he's accomplished 
for you and in you. Brag about what he has done. Glory in it. And allow that glory to shape your worth, knowing that this is what Jesus has done. It's settled. It's firm and secure. He said it is finished. And build an identity off of something that will last. You know, in the time of Jesus and in the time that James is writing, one of the most divided and segregated places in society was the dinner table. It was a place that was often, I mean, who you ate with was a signal to the community of your status. And Jesus, before he died, he gave his followers a meal to share. And Jesus took bread and he took wine and he assigned meaning to these over a Passover meal. And he said, this bread represents my body, this wine represents my blood that I'm gonna give for you. Jesus so loves his disciples, the rich and the poor, and he brings both to the same table, shattering all the categories that that first century society had and he brings them around the same table with the same elements, the same food. And he says, this is your identity. This is who you are. You are people who have partaken of my body and my blood that was broken for you. You're people who by my grace have been redeemed and restored. That's who you are. Before you're that successful person, before you're that CEO, principal, whatever title you have, before you're that mom that stays at home, before you're that person who uh, is a, a chief of, of your police station, before you're the person who runs your company, before you're anything else, you're a child of God. Welcome to his table. And his grace, his mercy, his love is what shapes how we view ourselves and who we are. In a moment, after I finish praying, we're gonna take communion together and proclaim that proclaim that he is the one who defines who we truly are. And Jesus, through his death on the cross, when he says as it is finished, he communicates to us that our sense of self, our identity, it's settled. He's won that for us. Would you join me in prayer? Let's pray together before we close our time. First, I wanna speak to those of you here who have never trusted in Jesus as your savior. Maybe you're here and you've never had that moment when, you had, when you've received the identity that he has for you. I wanna just invite you, both of our campuses watching online, I wanna invite you off the tryout field. Are you ready to receive what Christ has already accomplished for you? To say yes to Jesus. Say to him, Jesus, you're my Lord. I believe you died and rose for me. And because you did that, I can be forgiven and made whole. If that's you, then right now where you are, I wanna offer you an invitation. I wanna offer you an invitation to receive that identity as his beloved child. If that's you right then and there, you could just write now in your heart, go to Jesus and say, Jesus, I need you. I need you today. I confess I'm not enough. 
I can't make it on my own. But you did everything that needed to be done for me. I give you my life, Jesus. I surrender everything to you. And I want to follow you. And for the rest of us, would you just kind of in a quiet posture of prayer as we prepare to take communion here in a moment, would you just go to the Lord and in a time of just personal confession, right there to Jesus, straight to him, would you just confess and say to Jesus, Jesus, I I, I need to be reminded of how I've been exalted or humbled by you. Take a few moments now, just personally, quietly from your heart and say, Jesus, I admit to you, this is, wh- this is where I'm at. This is where I need you. And would you allow the gospel to lift you or lower you, but to set you on a firm foundation of who God has called you to be as his beloved child. Father, we thank you that The circumstances of our lives do not determine the worth of our lives. We don't have to put up with the performance. Jesus, you already did that for us. Help us to live as a freed people. Exalt us and humble us. And help us to live this day and this week with an awareness of who we are and whose we are. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, if you made that decision just now to put your trust in Jesus as your savior and put your faith in him, then I just wanna encourage you. That's, that's a significant life-changing moment. And uh, right there in front of you, there's a Get Connected card. Yeah, we can clap for that for the people who made that decision. Right then and there in front of you, there's a a Get Connected card. I'd love for you to fill that out. There's a spot that you could say, today I decided to follow Jesus. We wanna be praying for you. We'd also love to celebrate that with you and give you a Bible as our gift. Um, But we wanna come alongside you in this journey of faith. And then here's what I'd say, we're gonna take communion here in a second. So if you would go ahead and grab your communion elements. If you don't have one, but you would like one, you could raise your hand. We're gonna have some ushers come by and they'll hand them out to you if you need one, you didn't get one when you came in. And here's what this is. This is a a proclamation for believers in Jesus to say that Jesus' body and his blood that was broken and shed for us, that Jesus secured our eternal destiny, that he has made us his. And so if you're someone that's not sure yet what you believe about Jesus, if you're not a Christian and you're here today, first, we're just honored that you would spend your Sunday with us. We hope you always feel welcome. But here's what we would ask. We'd ask that you would hold off from taking communion. This is a holy moment for followers of Jesus to proclaim the death of Jesus that has counted for us. And so if you're not yet ready to make that declaration, hold off. But maybe today you just put your trust in Jesus. I wanna invite you to go ahead and take this. Maybe this is your first time ever proclaiming that Jesus' body and blood counted for you. And so if you would go ahead and take the uh, top layer off, the plastic layer off and grab the bread. And remembering the body of Jesus that was broken for us, we take this bread and we receive it, remembering how he's humbled us, how he's exalted us. Would you take it?
And if you would unwrap the cup. On the night before his death, Jesus took a cup and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Whenever you drink of it, remember me. Remember what he did for us. And so with the exaltation and humbling that he's given us, would you take the cup and drink it with me? Father in heaven, we receive this meal today as a symbol of the established truth of a, of a deep reality that we are yours, that we are in Christ. We are not our own. We were bought with a price, adopted into your family, loved by you. And there's nothing that we can do to change that. Jesus, we love you. We give you our worship in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, would you stand with us as we close in song together in a time of worship? Thanks for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at cityrev.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, you can email us at podcast at cityrev.org.